Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4? Genesis chapter 4. We do not normally consider the genealogies of Scripture to be among its more exciting parts, do we? Any readers of Scripture out there? Wayne, I know you're a reader of Scripture. Would you cop to that? <laughs> Nevertheless, it is the genealogies that we come to in our, in our progress through Genesis today. And what do we need to remember, especially today? We need to remember this statement from the New Testament. The statement Scripture makes about itself, that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Holy Spirit does not waste words. He always has a point, and the point is what? The point is to instruct sinners in the way of life. So let's come to God's word, giving it proper reverence and and attention this morning, okay? Then let's, let's reverence it by standing as we read this section. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methusael, and Methusael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his, own, to his image, and named him Seth. 
Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years. He died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So also the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Methuselah lived 185 years, 87 years, and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became a father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have before us here two separate records of two different sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Seth. These are brothers that are as different from one another as light is from dark. In our study of Genesis so far, we have seen God dividing things. Over and over again, we've seen this. He's divided the light from the darkness. He's divided land from sea. He's divided kind from kind among the animals. He's divided man from among the beasts. He has divided male from female. Here in the work of redemption, the work that God gives himself to after the fall, the work of salvation, we see him dividing in a new, a profoundly new way. In the midst of the curses that God deals out, to, his, to, to man in the wake of man's sin, he establishes an even more fundamental division in the world 
than he has, that we have yet seen. A distinction more foundational to our lives than our sex, our race, our, our rank or station in the world, our income bracket. A distinction that is the key to understanding all the rest of history, all the rest of scripture. And especially understanding ourselves, our fathers, our mothers, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our friends. After the fall, God makes a radical division in the world. Not between man and beast, not between men and women, but between one kind of man and another kind of man. Between two lines or two races of men. What is the nature of this division that God makes? Well, listen to what God said to the serpent as he is cursing the serpent for his deception of Eve. He said this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, conflict or warfare, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the, to use a fancy word, the Evangelion, the first proclamation or publishing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in a shadow, a veiled form, but here it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in it lies an incredible mystery. It speaks of two seeds, two offspring, two children, that God will cause to fight with each other. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, in, this is not telling us that henceforth all men will hate all snakes. It is true that God has put naturally in man and between man and snake a kind of in antipathy, a hatred for one another. But this is speaking of something beyond that. Something, a spiritual, a far greater spiritual reality. How do we know? Well, we know this because the snake was not merely a snake. Revelation makes clear that this, is the ser- this serpent is Satan, the devil. And as such, he is the spiritual father of all those who oppose God. He is the father of those who oppose God. Now, how many of us does this apply to? How many of us came out of our mother's wombs opposed to God? Hating God. No one? Okay, most of us come out good, but there is the occasional bad apple. There's, you know, Adolf Hitler. Okay, that doesn't quite account for the, the, the cruelty in this world, so maybe there is a quarter of us that are bad. Maybe a half of us are bad and the other half good. There's a book on Max's desk which is based on this principle right now. I just saw it last night and he was telling me about it. The premise is, I can't remember what it's called, but the premise is there are evil people in the world. Here's how to identify them and keep clear of them. What does God's word say about how many of us are born in opposition to him? The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 3 says that both Jews and Greeks And in Bible's terms, that is everybody on the face of the world. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none 
who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is what's true of every single last one of us, every man, woman, and child, because of our generation, our descent from Adam. Together with our father Adam, we have become useless. We have become corrupt. And this is true of us from the moment when? When, when we encountered another bad apple and we, and we followed their example and fell into sin? No, it's true of us from the moment of our conception. In sin, my mother conceived me. I was in sin, says the King David, from the moment of my conception. He says this while confessing his adult, mature sins of adultery and murder. Why did David commit these sins? Because he was a sinner. He had been from the moment of his conception. Our corruption runs so deep that we are not even able to know ourselves, to understand ourselves, and, and even more so, we are unwilling to acknowledge ourselves. How many of us are excited today at the thought of self-disclosing our sin? We go to small group tonight. How many of us are looking forward to the opportunity to self-disclose our nature, to confess at the truth about our hearts, our wickedness, our corruptions? There's not a one of us, is there? None of us are going to claim to be perfect. But nonetheless, we are deeply committed to the lie that we are better than we are bad, we're more, more good than we are bad, that we're better than our, uh, those around us are generally ready to give us credit for, and that we are certainly better than God's word says that we are. This is how deep our corruption lies, that we are not even able or willing to know ourselves, to be honest about ourselves. But let God be true, though all of us are liars. His word testifies concerning man that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that there is none righteous, not one. Well then, if, if there is this great division between men in the world that God has made at this point in his word, and if all of us are in the one category by virtue of our birth, Who is left to fill up the other category? Well, by all rights, there should be no one. There should be no one in the category of the righteous, the seed of the woman, the seed of promise. There should be no one in that category. Nevertheless, this promise testifies of another race, another group, the seed of the woman, who will war against the seed of the serpent and ultimately triumph over him. Now we know that this is speaking prophetically in an ultimate sense of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who tramples Satan and has made a a spectacle of him, triumphing over him through the blood of his cross. But it also refers to those who have been joined and united to him in faith, who have been washed in his blood, who have been purchased by him, who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Though all men are born dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually blind and insensible of the things of God, God is pleased to call some men to life and to open their eyes in the words of Jesus to Paul in the book of Acts. He has done this so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified or made holy by faith in Jesus. This transformation, that this this transition or this transferring from one kingdom to another is such a radical thing. It's on such a deep level that Jesus describes it as being born again, being remade. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We were all of us born the first time, slaves of sin, free from righteousness, as Paul puts it, producing in ourselves the awful fruit of our union with the devil. But praise be to God, some of us have been set free from our bondage to sin, delivered from it, and experience now the joy of being born a second time by the Spirit of God, made servants of God, bearing fruit unto holiness and receiving the end of it, the ever, uh, everlasting life that God has promised. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Born once, die once, die forever. Born twice, die once, live forever. Anybody ever heard that? I think I learned it from J.C. Ryle on the treadmill. (laughs) I listen to J.C. Ryle when I'm exercising. Born once, die once, die forever. Born twice, die once, live forever. This is the fundamental division in the world between those who are born once and those who are born again. Those who are alive in the body but dead in their spirits. And those who live both in their bodies, though their bodies are filled with corruption and dying, they are alive unto God. This is the fundamental division between men. It's a division God has made. He has made it not because he's nasty, but because he's merciful. By rights, there should be no one to populate that other category. But God has been pleased to set his love upon some men.
Between these two groups of people, there is what? A constant war. A constant war. A fighting. Death and life, darkness and light, sin and holiness, heaven and hell, these are absolute and antithetical principles. There's no neutral ground between them. They are absolutely set against one another. These are two armies at war. And each of us here today belongs to one of these camps. Our allegiances are to one of these masters. Every chapter, every verse of Scripture testifies to this truth. Since I've been preparing this sermon, all these things are on my mind. So when I heard the Scripture lesson this morning, it's just full of this truth. A conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's also filled with the wonderful testimony of who will win the conflict. Though the people of God are small and puny and despised, and the enemies of God are, are in their pomp and their strength and they're pumping their chests, the people of God will triumph in the end. Well, this is what we see set out before us in the juxtaposition of these two re- records of, these, of two families. The record of the family of Cain and the record of the family of Seth. And what we need to see from it is who these men were, what they're like, what they gave themselves to, and what came of their work. Who is Cain? Well, we're told in the first place that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain is, of course, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, the one whose mother had confidence that he would be the child of promise when when he's born. He says, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. God had made a promise that he would give her a son, that the son son would triumph over Satan, and it seems clear to me that when, when Cain is born, she's convinced initially that this is the one. This is not to be the case, is it? Cain and his younger brother Abel both offer sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted of God because he offers it in faith and in belief and in true worship and love for God. Cain's offering is rejected because the very opposite is true. He does not believe, does not truly worship God, does not have faith, and his offering is rejected. Now, Cain should have looked to his brother as an example to follow. Instead, what does he do? He's filled with envy, and he kills Cain. Abel, as it turns, or he kills Abel. Abel, as it turns out, is the first child born of the promise. And as such, he's the first one listed in the book of Hebrews among the fathers of our faith. The originator of our faith. He's the first son of Adam to be born again of God's spirit, to be regenerated, to be remade, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. Notice that it is the second born son of Adam that God chose, and not the first. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament. 
It recurs often. We, we have in the fact that Isaac, the second-born son of Abraham, is chosen over Ishmael, the first. Jacob is chosen over Esau, the older brother. David, the second king of Israel, is chosen to belong to God and to exemplify God's character over Saul, the first king. This is just one of the ways that the Bible testifies constantly to the truth, to the division, the distinction between men, and to the the truth that Jesus said, a man must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. The fleshly comes first, and the spiritual comes after. That we're born in sin, that we have to be remade. This is why Jesus could look at Nicodemus and rebuke him for not understanding this statement. You are a teacher in Israel. You have this witness of the scriptures and you do not understand that a man must be born again. You think I'm crazy for saying this? The Bible is constantly testifying in many ways to this great truth. So Abel is the first child of promise and what happens to him? Well, the same thing that's been happening to God's saints ever since. He was hated for righteousness' sake. He was killed. Cain went, is judged by God, and he is excommunicated from the church. This is what it means that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Of course, God is everywhere. He's infinite. There is no place that we can flee from his presence. But nevertheless, he's been pleased to, to identify himself or to reveal himself in a special way, in, in, a, in a way that gives blessing and the way, a way that is, I don't know how to say it, in a special sense, God is present among his people. What Jesus said, where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. And Cain is banished from this group. He, is, he goes out from the presence of the Lord. What does Cain do out there in the land of Nod, the land of wandering? What does he do? Well, the first thing we see him do is after the Lord gives him a son, is he builds a city. He builds a city. And what's the significance of Cain building a city? Well, it's hard for us to enter in to this concept today because cities have come to mean a very different thing for us in the modern world than they meant um, for everybody living probably up through the Middle Ages. Cities have always meant fortification, defense, walls, gates, enemies without, friends within, and safety. You go to Europe and you go to cities still that are surrounded with walls. New York is not surrounded with walls in the same way. We're, we're contemplating putting up more walls these days because of the, the increasing danger in the world. But today we have free access. Cities are, mean something else in this regard. So why does Cain build himself a city, which means he built himself a fortress? 
God, what had God said to him? He complained to God that he was worried everybody was going to just kill him. Anybody that saw, sees me is going to kill me. And God says, no, they won't. If, if they do, they will be avenged sevenfold, and I'm going to put a mark on you so that anybody who sees you will not kill you. This is the promise made to Cain, and what does Cain do? He's not satisfied. He gives himself to building a, a fortress, a, 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 a concrete two-inch thick steel room in his house where he can get away from the germs. He can get away from the enemies. He can get away from everything. What's, what's going on in the psyche of a man that does this? Well, Cain, unable to love God, to, to have peace with God, is afflicted in his conscience. And so he is driven controlled completely by his fears. So he builds himself a city in which to hide in. And so what is it? This city is a symbol of what? Of his unbelief, his his refusal to accept the promise of God made to him. It's more than this, though. We see that he names the city after his son, Enoch. Now, What's going on when a man names things after himself? What does this mean? Well, the Psalms, Psalm 49, gives us insight into the mentality that drives this phenomenon, this evil habit we have as men of celebrating ourselves and erecting monuments to ourselves in this world. It says in Psalm 49, verse 11, Speaking of those who do this, that name their lands after themselves, it says that their inner thought is that their houses are forever. And their dwelling places are for all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. What happens to Cain? What happens to his whole family? They're completely lost, obliterated in the flood. There is no more of them after the end of this short record. Man in his pump will not endure. Have you all been to Adam Spadey's house? The first time I went to Adam Spadey's house, I was so thankful for what Adam had done. You come up the stairs, you turn to your left right next to the front door, and there's this big stone. And what's written on the stone? Does anybody know? In this house, we groan. Why? Longing to be clothed with our clothing from heaven. What a godly testimony for a a Christian home builder to set at the door of his house as a reminder to his whole family, as a witness to the community, that this house is not my hope. This is not my joy. This is a tool that God has blessed me with as I live on my way to somewhere glorious, somewhere lasting, to a city that has foundations. 
So Cain, in every way, in building this city, is exhibiting his incredible pride, his incredible unbelief. What is this, how does this affect Cain's children? What is the fruit of this in his family? His, his separation from the people of God, his going out and separating himself, his, his excommunication from the church, his building a city driven by his own fear and his own pride. What is going on? Or what effect does it have on Cain's children? What legacy does he leave behind? Well, we get a vivid picture of this in Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, and in Lamech's wives and children. The first thing we note about Lamech is that he is the world's first bigamist. The first to disobey God's command prior to the fall that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two will become, the two will become one flesh. God's clear command is that marriage is to be a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. Lamech, the great, great, great grandson of Cain, is the first in history to disobey this command and to take and to multiply wives to himself. And we get insight into the, his, his, what drives and motivates this in the names of these women themselves and their meanings. Ada and Zillah is their name, are their names. Ada means pleasure, ornament, beauty. And Zillah means tinkling, which sounds silly, doesn't sound pretty at first, but if you, ju- you just go tickle your children today <laughs> and listen to that sound, that tinkling bell-like quality of a child's voice, and you know that tinkling is beautiful. You go to the Swiss Alps and up in the mountains and you listen to the sounds of all the animal bells in the summer as the animals are, are feeding on the slopes. And it's just echoing everywhere. You know that tinkling is beautiful. And this is an allusion to the beauty of a woman's voice. Zilla. And then the daughter of, of Lamech, who's mentioned here, means loveliness or sweetness. There is a cult of beauty that develops in the city of Cain. A cult not of the beauty, the hidden person of the heart, that the, the kind of beauty that God admires in a woman, but the, the, the kind of worship of beauty that is fleshly, of externals, that celebrates physical appearances. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Young men, old men, what what appetite do you have, do we have, for beauty? What do we find precious? What do we find beautiful? What do we celebrate in the naming of our children, in, in the wives that we seek out and choose for ourselves. What do we admire? 
Are we like God in admiring the inward godliness, humility, and submission of, uh, of one of his children? Or are we, are we like Lamech? Are we like the world in our pursuit of and worship of external beauty, which is fleeting, deceitful, and vain? Young women, what kind of beauty are you pursuing and cultivating in yourself? I know that the world lies constantly and that you're oppressed with the pressure and the, the temptation to believe that no man will want a godly woman. You have to have faith, young women, older women. You have to have faith that what God admires will be admired by his sons. That what God loves in his daughters will be admired by his sons. It, it has to be enough for us that God loves it. If God loves internal godliness and humility and submission, then if we give ourselves to it, God will provide what we need. He will provide the affirmation. He will provide the husband that we need in his time. Live by faith, young women. Cultivate that internal beauty of the heart. Then we look at Lamech's sons. Jabel was the father, the originator of the art of livestocking. He's like the, the, the first rancher. He figures out the art, all that goes into raising livestock, breeding them, caring for them, um, pasturing them. Jubal, the second son, is the father, the originator of all who play musical instruments. And Tubal-Cain, the first to forge tools out of bronze and iron. Now, these are impressive young men. Impressive young men. It's enough to make any Christian parent proud. Uh, I'm being facetious. But this, if you, if you listen to, to what is celebrated today, what is pursued today? If you track your own desires for your children, you know that this is enough to make any Christian parent today proud. This is what we want from our children. We want them to be the father of something. We want them to, to be... We want all our children to be celebrated in this way to be successful, to be accomplished, to be degreed, to be high-achieving, to be important, to matter, human flourishing. There's conferences that are just devoted to the concept of human flourishing, which is all just a big attempt to see Christians become like Lamech's sons. 
there's a prominent Reformed Christian man today who says that we need to build a culture so great that the world will envy it. They'll envy us and want to come into us because of our great culture that we have established. Now, it's, it's true that God in the garden gave us the, the obligation to exercise dominion, to rule the world, which includes developing arts and skills and knowledge, and there's nothing wrong with skills and knowledge and accomplishment. But remember which family we're, de- we're talking about. Remember their, their end. What does it get them? What does it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world and let, yet loses his soul? So it's not one or the other in a sense, but it is one or the other when it comes to a choice between God and this world. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll despise the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve both God and man. There's a couple of things to note about the fact of these men's accomplishments. But we see first, these, remember these are the wicked. These are the descendants of Cain. These are not the good guys. And yet we see that God does not withhold creativity and ingenuity from them. From his enemies, he does not withhold these good gifts of creativity. He allows them to reflect his image in this world in, to a great degree by their creativity and to give him glory by it, even if it's involuntary on their part. It says in Luke 6.35 that we are to be kind to the wicked because why? God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. There's no sense from this text that these young men gave themselves to ingenuity and work and creativity in the world in order to give God glory. But every indication that they did this, just as their father before them, their great-great-great-grandfather Cain, in order to glorify man themselves, to set up their own kingdom. Matthew Henry calls this city of Cain the headquarters of the apostasy. That this city is a a symbol in the world of all that is antichrist, all that is opposed to God, all that celebrates the the pomp of man and, 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 and communicates hatred for God. God does not withhold even to these, these good gifts of creativity. Now why does God do this? Why would he not withhold from them? Well, he does this first so that they will be without excuse on the day of judgment. It's one more way in which God leaves them without excuse. That they have even in themselves this testimony to him that they are able to look at a complicated set of possibilities and to construct something wonderful and profitable by with them to use this world to be helpful. And then when they face God, they will be left without excuse. But he also does this 
in order to bless his saints. I've been a beneficiary of this in the last couple of weeks. I had a surgery. And while I know hospitals in the modern world have sprung largely from Christians, it's been a long time since that's true of the healthcare industry. And there's wonderful advancements that have been made. <laughs> really wonderful things that they can do for you and for me in the hospital. Truly amazing. Who's developed them? And I'm blessed by it. I had a surgery, my first surgery. It went well. I'm alive. And that's amazing. And that is a gift of God to me from the wicked. Not every last person in the healthcare industry is wicked, don't get me wrong. There were one or two godly nurses there. Kristen Wegener, I wish I had seen you, but everybody was complaining about Bloomington Hospital. <laughs> everybody. Trying to be real sweet about it, but they were complaining. <laughs> but even with all the complaints, Bloomington Hospital saves lives daily. The lives of God's people are spared. And, and allowed to go on and, and, and to be a blessing in this world because of the advancement of the wicked. Last week, the last verse of Micah chapter 4 in the scripture lesson really stuck out to me. It says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, people of God. Arise and thresh, harvest. For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze. Why? That you may pulverize many peoples. Why? That you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. It says in the book of Revelation that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the heavenly temple of God. Why does God give gifts to the wicked? Why does he allow them to advance technologies and to make the internet and to learn how to publish books? And Yes, because there's lots of sin involved, I know. I know it's horribly corrupt, especially the internet. But these things are, are part of the riches of the kings of the earth that God will bring in to his temple and allow to be a blessing to his people. It's often said about rock and roll instruments. Think about Jubal here. Oh, oh, Jubal, yeah, he's the one that invented instruments, right? So instruments are bad. (laughs) Is that the lesson that we learn here? No, the lesson is not that instruments are bad. They are not in themselves anything. They are tools. The lesson to learn is that even instruments, which serve maybe only to give us pleasure and don't, aren't nearly as useful maybe as cattle or of ironwork, even musical instruments can be redeemed and used by God's people. An abuse of something, the fact that something is made not for the glory of God intentionally, but for the glory of man, an abuse of something 
does not negate its use. David, what did he kill the Goliath with? A sword forged on a godly anvil by a godly man from a Christian business? <laughs> no, he picked up Goliath's own sword and he chopped his head off with it. We are not prohibited from picking up these tools that are given us by the wicked and using them in the war against them. In fact, we must. If we see an advantage, we take it. We've seen an advantage, we, we feel, with these instruments, that these instruments help us to love the men of today and to communicate to them, to speak their language so that we can testify clearly to them about God, their maker, their redeemer. And so we use them. Even though we have Jubal to thank for them. Then we see Lamech's blasphemy. He sings a blasphemous song. What is blasphemy? It's the offense of speaking sacrilegiously against the things of God, against sacred things. It's, it's the offense of taking up a sacred thing and using it for, for, for jokes. That's blasphemy. Or misusing it in any way. Lamech said to his wives, verse 23, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Unreal. Where's Max? Is it time to like be done with the whole service? What a failure. I'm sorry. This is a blasphemous song. It's blasphemous in these ways. Here he is boasting in a disproportionate response to an insult. He kills a young man for striking him. And how is that blasphemous? Well, he's, he's, what Cain fell into, what he succumbed to, Lamech is, is reveling in. Listen to my taunt song that I just wrote about my, this wonderful disproportionate response of shock and awe. Watch him gleefully trample on God's law. But he also punctuates his boast by perverting God's promise of protection that he gave to Cain and applying it to himself as if he was God. Remember, God said to Cain the, that, that if, don't worry, Cain, you're protected. If, if somebody tries to kill you, I will, I, I will avenge you sevenfold. And here's Lamech saying, if Cain was avenged sevenfold which was not, well, it didn't happen because Cain wasn't killed, but God promised it to him if it, if it happened. Here's Lamech saying, well, I'll, I'll better that. I'll better that. 
I'll, I've avenged myself 77-fold. He's sitting himself in the throne of God. This is the height of blasphemy. Very quickly, the point. The point. What do we see Seth give himself to in his line? One, one thing. One little humble thing. One very, the kind of thing that does not make Christian parents proud. One little thing is tucked in there for our encouragement. That Seth, in his day, and his children, verse 26, began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What were they known for? It doesn't mean that they didn't give themselves to ingenuity and creativity and learning to cook nice things and learning to decorate their houses. Of course they did that. But they were known. What were they known for? This one little thing. They were known as those who began to call upon the name of the Lord, the ones who restored or or built, began to erect the city of God on earth. There's two cities in this world, the city of Cain, the city of Satan, the city that the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, identifies as Babylon. Babylon, the great whore, the city of Cain, the city of man. And there's this other city, which is the city of God. Which city are we citizens of? Which city do we belong to? Which city are we aspiring to build? Which one are we going to be remembered for? Which city are are we seeking to develop an appetite for, a love for in our children? Are we those who call upon the name of the Lord? Or are we those who erect monuments to ourselves? Who are seeking to live out our ambitions and desires through our children in this world? Or are we those who are seeking God, who are calling upon his name, who are marked out as his clearly and known as such by others? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today that you would put in our hearts a love for you, that you would cause us to be among your people, to rejoice in your church, to, have, to not forget Jerusalem, but to have her as our highest joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.